Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and we upload the video version onto YouTube as well every Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. Now you guys, today's case is one that I am so interested to hear your opinions on. It is truly a case unlike any we have ever covered before. And as you can tell by the title, today we are talking about the case of Teresita Bassa, also known as the woman who solved her own murder, or you may know it as being called the voice from beyond the grave. This again, truly is unlike any case that we have ever covered before. I have have no idea what to think about this case. I think it is wild. It definitely dabbles in to more of the paranormal aspect than other cases that we have covered in the past. And that's all I'm going to say about it before we jump right on into it today. So let's get into it. Teresita Bassa was born on March 13th, 1929, to her father Pedro and her mother Socorro in the Philippines. Teresita was an only child and she grew up being very passionate about exploring different hobbies. Two things that she specifically loved as a child were gardening and music. She absolutely loved music. Now, Teresita was the daughter of one of the more prominent families where she grew up in a city called Dumaguete, and her father Pedro again was a very prominent businessman and because of that Teresita definitely was afforded the luxuries of being able to explore really whatever she wanted. She was her parents only child and they had such a tight-knit bond between the three of them and Teresita really was wrapped around their finger. Teresita was gifted a Steinway piano to practice her love for music and she also loved listening to old records. Growing up it was said that Teresita was an old soul. She was interested in different hobbies that kids her age really weren't dabbling in at the time. Teresita loved to explore. She loved to travel, as you will see as we continue, and she was just all around a force. She was determined, she was motivated, she was independent, and she never let anything stand in her way. Now, during World War II in 1942, Japan had invaded the city in which Teresita and her family lived in. And this was a very hard time for everyone, including Teresita, because she was a teenager at the time. So this came with a lot of different changes for her than what her normal everyday life used to be. And because of this, her parents were actually debating moving and relocating to get out of the city to avoid everything that was going on. However, like I said, Teresita's father was a major influence in business, and he was basically told by the government that he had to stay. So again, at this time, Teresita is a teenager and everything that she ever knew, her basically normal, what her normal was for her whole life was now turned upside down. And because of this, Teresita made the decision to move to Manila to get a fresh start. Manila is also located in the Philippines. It is actually the capital of the Philippines. And it was while she was there that Teresita attended St. Scholastica College where she studied music. After that, 
she moved to London, where she continued her studies in music at the Royal College of Music and also loved exploring the city. She got a degree in pianoforte, and after that, she went backpacking through Europe with some of her friends from the Philippines. During her time in Europe, she ended up meeting many, many people. One in particular were a couple that lived in Chicago who told her to visit whenever she wanted. And Teresita definitely took them up on that offer because shortly after her backpacking trip in the summer of 1957, Teresita decided to go to Chicago and explore that city. And it was while she was in Chicago that Teresita absolutely fell in love with the United States, so much so that she actually ended up enrolling in the foreign exchange program at Illinois University. And Teresita really thrived at Illinois University, and she was just a couple credits short before graduating before she decided to move again, this time to Washington, D.C. While she was in Washington, D.C., she ended up taking a job as a typist working alongside a family friend of hers. However, her musical studies did not stop because while she was working on this typist job, she was also studying piano at the Library of Congress. While she was working and studying there, she ended up getting invited to the diplomatic reception, and it was there that she met a man named Edward O'Meara. And when Teresita and Edward met, the two of them hit it off immediately and started dating. However, unfortunately, right when things were getting serious between Edward and Teresita, Teresita's visa was set to expire, and she had to go back to the Philippines. So this was a very unfortunate and sad time for Teresita and Edward because the two of them were just getting started in their relationship. However, unfortunately, in 1965, Teresita did have to move back to the Philippines. She had full intentions of moving back to the United States. However, she did have to move back to the Philippines while she was applying for her citizenship. Now, even though she moved back home with her family, her and Edward did decide that they were going to continue a long-distance relationship and Edward actually came out to the Philippines on multiple different occasions to see Teresita. Now, like I said, Teresita came from a very prominent family. Her father knew a lot of people. He had a lot of connections. And on the last trip that Edward made to go see Teresita, no one knew it was going to be the last trip until Pedro informed Teresita that Edward had been visiting brothels while he was out in the Philippines. So unfortunately, Pedro did have to break that news to his daughter after he had done some digging on Edward and his background. So that is when Edward and Teresita ended their relationship. Now, after the relationship was over, Teresita really tried to push past her desires to go back to the United States. She thought that she could continue living in the Philippines and live a happy life there. However, there was something inside of her that always told her that she needed to go back. She wanted to go back. She fell in love with Chicago. She fell in love with the United States. And this is where she wanted to be. So on December 7th of 1971, 42-year-old Teresita Bassa moved back to the United States with nothing but a couple suitcases and $400 in her pocket. 
Now, when she moved back, the very first thing she did is re-enrolled in Illinois University to go back and finish the remaining credits that she had left while simultaneously having a job as a receptionist. And very quickly, Teresita realized that the receptionist job was not going to be able to fund her lifestyle the way she wanted it to. So she knew she needed to find an alternate way of income or find a different job in general. So it was then that she ended up enrolling in the respiratory therapy program at the YMCA Community College in September of 1972. Then two years later, in 1974, Teresita ended up graduating from the program and was able to get a job at the Edgewater Hospital located in Chicago, Illinois. Now, because of her new job and her new salary, Teresita was able to get a new and better apartment in an apartment complex called the Pine Grove Apartments. These apartments were located right across from Lincoln Park, if you are familiar with Chicago. And the first thing that Teresita wanted to do when she moved in was buy a piano for her apartment, which she did. Now, in the beginning of this new job working at the hospital as a respiratory therapist, Teresita was definitely known to be more quiet. She kept to herself. She was reserved. And this was mainly because her relationship with Edward really shot Teresita's trust all in all. She had a hard time believing people and believing people's intentions. And so it was really hard for her to make friends in the beginning. However, slowly over time, she did end up opening up to her coworkers and she became very good friends with a lot of them. Most of her social circle did come from her co-workers and Teresita was known to be the one who would host dinner parties and have game nights and she was always having people over at her apartment. So I know I just threw a lot at you in terms of Teresita's background, but I think it's just really important to know. I think that she has definitely had a background unlike any we have ever covered before and I think it gives you a good indication as to who Teresita was. Like I said in the beginning, independent, motivated, determined, and she never let anything stand in her way. So this brings us to February 21st of 1977 at approximately 3 p.m. Now on this day and at this time, Teresita was getting ready to leave work. So she was going to leave the hospital and go home for the day. While she was getting her belongings ready, she was talking to a coworker of hers named Alan Showery. Alan also worked at the hospital and him and Teresita often took the bus together on their ride rides home. Teresita and Alan lived on opposite sides of town, but they took the same bus, so this day was no different. The two of them got onto the bus together, and it was on this specific bus ride that Teresita had told Alan that her TV was broken. She had recently gotten this new TV, and the wires weren't working. She was having some technical difficulties with it, and Alan told Teresita that he would have no problem coming by and fixing the TV for her. Now, something else to know about Teresita is that she was also in a band with some of her co-workers. Now, at this time, this band was putting on a show. They were having a little like live performance type of deal. And Teresita was telling Alan that he should come to the show. Now at the time, Alan said that he was pretty tight on money and probably wasn't going to be able to make it. However, Teresita told him not to worry and that she would set aside a couple extra free tickets for Alan. The two of them 
also talked about the fact that Alan was a drummer, and coincidentally enough, the drummer in Teresita's band had quit. And so they talked about the possibility of Alan stepping in and being the drummer for that show and for the continuation of the band in general. So that was the conversation between Teresita and Alan all before Teresita got off of the bus. Several hours later, at approximately 7 p.m., Teresita made a phone call to another coworker of hers, who was also a friend and a bandmate. This man was named Dr. John Abella, and Teresita called him to talk about their upcoming show. They spoke about marketing and how they could market to sell more tickets for the show, and Teresita also told John that she might have found them a brand new drummer, Alan. Now, John claimed that while they were on this phone call, Teresita had received a knock on her door and claimed that she had to go before hanging up the phone. Now, a couple minutes later, at approximately 7.30 p.m., Teresita was on the phone with another good friend of hers named Ruth. Ruth was also a coworker of Teresita's and one of Teresita's closest friends. Now, when Ruth called, Teresita told her that there was a male visitor at her apartment However, she never ended up naming who this visitor was. Ruth claimed that she could hear a male's voice in the background, however, couldn't make out what he was saying. But other than that, the rest of the phone call was very normal. It was a casual catching up conversation between two friends before Teresita ended up hanging up the phone. But little did they know that that would be the last time that the two of them would ever speak. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So this brings us to about an hour and a half later at approximately 9 p.m. when Teresita's down the hall neighbor was cleaning up the dinner that they had had for that night. While they were cleaning up, they noticed the smell of something burning. Something smelled smoky. Something was wrong. The neighbor went and opened up the door and that is when they saw that the hallway was filled with smoke. The neighbors began running down the hall, banging on everyone's door, yelling fire before getting into the elevator and stopping on the seventh floor to go and tell the janitor of the apartment that there was a fire and to call 911. They then got back into the elevator and made their way down and waited for the fire department who raced over. Now, the fire department arrived to the complex and immediately began combing through the entire building. Now, when they did, they were able to find the source of the fire, which was Teresita's apartment. 
The fire itself seemed to be coming from Teresita's bedroom floor, right next to the bed frame. They were able to subdue the fire, and when they did, they discovered a mattress that was placed on top of a pile of clothes in the bedroom. When they picked up the mattress and removed the pile of clothes, they were shocked to find the body of Teresita lying underneath the mattress with a butcher knife sticking out of her chest. Immediately, the police were called, and when they walked in to the crime scene, police right off of the bat thought that this was a rape case because when Teresita was found, she was not wearing any clothes. So the police's first thought was that they were dealing with a sexual assault and a murder. However, when the autopsy was conducted, police were proven wrong because there was actually no evidence to show that Teresa had been raped. Along with that, the autopsy showed that Teresa had multiple vicious burns all over her body and her head. The fire had actually burned off most of her hair. Because Teresita's body was covered by that pile of clothes and the mattress, her face and upper torso were not as badly burned. Now, they also discovered that Teresita had been strangled before she was lit on fire, and the official cause of death was stabbing and strangulation. Now, when looking at the apartment itself, police were able to automatically notice that there were no signs of forced entry. Teresita actually had three separate locks on her door, none of which were damaged or broken, which showed police that whoever came into Teresita's apartment more than likely knew her. But other than no sign of forced entry, everything else in this apartment appeared to be a robbery. Everything was ransacked. You had lamps that were thrown on the floor, nightstands that were turned over, jewelry boxes that were just thrown all over the bedroom. Everything looked like a robbery at first glance. Everything was ransacked. Now, when combing through the apartment, police were unable to find a lot in terms of physical evidence. The one thing that they did find was a notepad right next to Teresita's telephone. And on the notepad, it said, quote, tickets for a now, police ended up taking that notepad and collecting it as evidence because there wasn't that much else to take at the time, and they figured that whoever AS stood for could be someone that they needed to talk to. Now, police were able to determine that the butcher knife that was found in Teresita's chest did actually belong to Teresita. They were able to see that from the kitchen, Teresita had been cooking shortly before her death. She had sliced up some lettuce and some tomatoes, and the However, there was no sign of a knife. Along with that, the knife itself that was found in Teresita was a part of a set that Teresita had, so it was similar to her other knives. Now, at this point, police started talking to anyone and everyone in the building to see if anyone had heard any sign of a struggle or any screams or anything leading up to the murder. However, unfortunately, no one heard a thing. And this was very uncommon because this was an apartment complex. You would think that if there was a struggle and it was clear just based on the crime scene that there was, you would think that because of that, there would be someone who heard something. However, that was not the case. 
Everyone said that Teresita was more reserved and quiet. However, the maintenance man who worked at the complex stated that about several weeks prior to Teresita's murder, Teresita was seen arguing with a man in the lobby of the complex. He stated that this man was a white male in his 50s and he had never seen him before and he never saw him again. So that is really all the information that police were able to get out of Teresita's friends in regards to her social life, her love life, things of that nature. But here is where things take a really, really, really wild turn. And that is where a woman named Remy Chua comes in to the picture. Now, Remy was a co-worker of Teresita's. The two of them were not close by any means. They didn't hang out outside of work. They weren't really even, you know, friendly while they were at work. However, after Teresita's murder, Remy took an interest in Teresita as a whole. Now, both of them were from the Philippines, so they did have that in common. But other than that, the two of them were not close. But this brings us to the summer after Teresita's murder. And this is where things start to shift. One day while at work, Remy was sitting in the break room of the hospital while some of her other co-workers were standing outside of the door. And all of a sudden, Remy's co-workers see Remy open up the door to the break room and sprint down the hall. Her face appeared as if she was shocked. She had seen something that spooked her almost, and no one really knew what to take from it. However, whatever Remy saw that day scared her enough to the point where she ended up going home for the day. So she didn't stay at the hospital. She left work. She went home. Now, Remy would later tell her husband that while she was in the break room, she closed her eyes for just a few seconds, and when she opened them, she claimed that she saw Teresita standing in the break room. Teresita didn't say anything, she didn't move, she didn't do anything. However, that visual was enough for Remy to sprint out of that room. Now, in the moment, Remy chalked it up to just a really bad dream, a nightmare even. She just felt like that was just, you know, something that her mind had made up and she, you know, went on to forget about it. That was her mindset. Oh, that was weird and that happened, but let's move on. However, in the days following that sighting, however, in the days following, Remy's demeanor definitely began to change. It was a noticeable change. She started talking about things like the piano and classical music, having friends over and hosting little get-togethers. And if you don't remember, those were all the things that Teresita used to do. Those were all her hobbies. And so it was just a little bit strange. However, it was happening so frequently that it was enough for her coworkers to take notice of it. And at first, they didn't know how to take it. They didn't know if Remy was trying to impersonate Teresita or if she was trying to make fun of Teresita at all. However, Remy actually ended up being fired for it. She ended up being fired for acting like Teresita, so to speak. And Remy would then go on to say later down the line that she was actually glad that she was fired from the hospital because she felt a weird energy shift being there that she did not like. Now, a week after Remy was fired, Remy and her husband, another doctor named Dr. Jose, 
They were sitting in their living room. Now, Jose claimed that while they were sitting in their living room, Remy nodded off. She just closed her eyes for a little bit when all of a sudden she opened them and abruptly stood up without saying a word and walked into their bedroom. Now, this was very odd behavior for Remy. She never would just get up and go straight to the bedroom without saying anything. So Jose gave it a little while thinking that she would come back. However, when she did he then got up and went into the bedroom and that is when he saw Remy laying in the middle of the bed staring straight at the ceiling. When Jose saw Remy, he started to ask her what she was doing, if she was okay, and that is when Jose claims that a voice came out of his wife's mouth that did not belong to her. While she was staring at the ceiling, Remy would tell Jose, quote, I am Teresita Bassa, end quote. She then looked at Jose and said, quote, Dr. Chua, I would like to ask for your help, end quote. Now, at this point, Jose was very confused because these two were married. If this was some weird practical joke or prank that Remy thought was funny or was trying to play, you know, they never referred to each other as doctor. That was not something that happened. And so Jose was telling her, why are you calling me doctor? You know, I'm your husband. We don't, we don't do this. What is, what is going on? And at this point, he didn't know what to believe. His wife is laying on the bed saying that she herself is a woman who was brutally murdered just months prior. But no matter how many times Jose tried to call out for Remy and get her to sort of snap out of it, Remy kept saying, Dr. Chua, I need your help. So ultimately, Jose decided to just say, okay, what do you need help with? And that is when Remy looked at him and said, quote, I need you to help stop the person who killed me, end quote. I know what you guys are thinking because I was thinking it too. What the heck? But let's just keep going. Now, at first, again, Jose doesn't know what to believe. He kind of at this point thinks that Remy is just having a little bit of a mental breakdown. He thought that, you know, she had recently gotten fired. She's had a stressful week. A lot has been going on. So she doesn't really know what she's saying. And this is just her being stressed. That was until Remy pointed at the phone and said, quote, please, doctor, call the police and tell them who killed me. I can't rest until you do, end quote. Now, it was right after Remy said those words that she ended up snapping out of it. She came to. But when that happened, Remy had no idea about what had just happened. It was all a blur to her. She didn't remember what had happened. And Jose was explaining it, but Remy couldn't remember any of it. But Regardless, the two of them just, again, chalked this up to Remy having a tough week. This was just, you know, something was going on, but, you know, they couldn't figure it out. They thought it was weird, but whatever. We're just going to go to sleep. And that is exactly what they did. However, the following day, Jose and Remy went back to the hospital that both Teresita and Remy used to work at to pick up Remy's belongings because, again, she had been fired and she needed to pick up the rest of her stuff. So they went to the hospital to pick up her things before going back to their home. And while they were at their house, Remy was on a phone call just having a very casual conversation with someone when Jose said, that all of a sudden Remy's demeanor changed again and she looked at Jose and said quote 
Teresita wants to come back, end quote. Afterwards, Remy handed Jose the phone before walking into the bedroom, laying on the bed, and staring at the ceiling for a second time. Now, Jose then hung up the phone with whoever Remy was on the phone with at the time and walked back into the bedroom after Remy and again sees her laying on the bed. And again, she says, quote, I am Teresita Bassa and the man who killed me is Alan Showery. He came to fix my television. He stabbed me. He choked me and he stole some of my jewelry end quote. After she stated this, Remy then went on to beg Jose to call the police again, just as she had done the night before. But in Jose's mind, Jose didn't know what to think because he, in his, you know, way of thinking and his thought process, he thinks, how can I call the police and tell them what you were telling me when I have no proof? What am I going to say? In his mind, he goes, "How? what am I going to say? My wife is telling me that she is Teresita Bassa and that this man killed her. It just was hard for Jose to process. But again, she insisted and was begging and begging him to call. She also started going into more detail about some of the jewelry that was missing. And in particular, she stated that there was a cocktail ring that her mother had gifted her about a year prior that Alan had stolen. Now, right after this description, Remy comes to again. She snaps out of it and she's disoriented. She's confused. And Jose explains to her everything that happened. Again, Remy doesn't remember any of it, and they did not call the police. They just went to bed. However, the following day, the same thing happened. Same routine, same things that were being said over and over. And then when Remy snapped out of it, Jose told her what happened. And at this point, Remy told Jose that they needed to do something because this was... Some, this was not okay. And this, so this is when the Evanston Police Department gets involved because Jose and Remy call the police and tell them that they have information about the case. They don't know how factual or how credible it is, but it's worth talking to them about. And that is when the detectives drive over to Remy and Jose's house and they tell the detectives everything that happened. They tell them about Alan Showery. They tell them about the jewelry. They tell them about all of it. And obviously at first, the detectives were very skeptical because I think anyone would be skeptical in this instance. No one knew what to take out of any of this. No one knew what to think of any of this. However, the detectives started to ask questions that were not public knowledge. Detectives asked Jose if the voice claimed that Teresita had been raped, and that is when Jose said no. There was no sexual assault. There was no rape. There was only stabbing and strangulation. And that was not a detail that was released to the public because the police had actually told the public that this appeared to be a rape robbery gone wrong. And that was the story that they had put out there. So for the detectives to now hear Jose and Remy say that that is not what happened, definitely gave them some more credibility and believability. Jose also went into detail in regards to the types of jewelry that Teresita claims were stolen. For example, he said again that cocktail ring. There was also a pendant from the Philippines that whoever this was, Teresita, claimed to be stolen as well. 
Now, at this point, detectives go back to the station and they start trying to sort through the case. They go through the whole list of people that were interviewed after Teresita's murder, and they realize that Alan Showery was never interviewed. And they also found in their evidence pile that note, the memo notepad that was next to Teresita's telephone that said tickets for AS. And it was at that point that police made the connection, AS, Alan Showery. So now they want to talk to Alan. So who is Alan Showery? Alan was born and raised in New York City and was 30 years old when he started working for Edgewater Hospital. He studied psychology and sociology at New York University before settling back down in Chicago. Allen had been arrested before for theft and burglary, as well as two rape arrests in 1972. I'm not sure how he was able to get a job at a hospital, but nonetheless, I will continue. Now, Allen had a girlfriend at the time named Yanka, and the two of them were living together, like I said earlier, on the opposite side of town from where Teresita lived. So police finally get a hold of Allen, and they bring him into the station for questioning. Allen was very compliant and very voluntarily went down to the station. However, he did ask if the reason that police wanted to talk to him was about Teresita. Alan went on to explain his relationship with Teresita and said that it was a strictly co-worker platonic relationship and that he actually hadn't seen Teresita outside of work in approximately six months. Now, at this point, police decided to kind of trick Alan a little bit and told him that they had found his fingerprints at Teresita's house that belonged to him. And they claimed that these fingerprints were not six months old and that they were new. But again, they had no, these fingerprints did not exist. Now, it was then that Alan admitted that he actually did go and see Teresita the night of the murder. However, he said it was because he promised to go over there and fix her TV. Now, at this point, police wanted to talk to Alan's girlfriend. So they go back to their apartment and they see Yanka and they ask her if Alan had gifted her any jewelry as of late. And she claimed that there were a few pieces that Alan had gifted her and claimed that it was a late Christmas present and that Alan had gifted them to her in the end of February. And just as a reminder, Teresita was murdered on February 21st. So now police had asked Teresita to bring her jewelry box back to the police station with them. And it was at this time that they had simultaneously called one of Teresita's friends and asked them to come down to the station as well because they wanted one of Teresita's friends who had seen her, seen her jewelry, seen her wear her jewelry before. They wanted someone who can see if any of the jewelry in this box looked familiar. So they call a friend and this friend comes down to the police station, walks in and sees the box of jewelry. Now, Yanka was also sitting in the room at the time as well, but when this friend looked at the jewelry, he claimed that nothing in the box looked familiar, nothing really stuck out to him, and he said that none of the jewelry in the box belonged to Teresita. However, he turned to walk out of the room, and when he did, he saw a ring that Yanka was wearing. And it was in that moment that he pointed to the ring and said, that is Teresita's. The ring that Yanka was wearing was Teresita's. He claimed that that was the ring that Teresita's mother had gifted her, the cocktail ring 
about a year prior to her murder. Now, Yanka immediately handed over the ring. She really wanted nothing to do with it. She said that she claimed that Alan had gifted her the ring in February as, again, one of those belated Christmas gifts. So police took the ring and actually showed it to Teresita's family and asked her parents if this ring was Teresita's. And that is when they confirmed as well that that ring did in fact belong to Teresita. So at this point, Alan's back was up against the wall. They had the ring, you know, they had the evidence that they needed in order to link Alan to this. And he was left with no choice really other than to confess. And that is pretty much exactly what he did. Alan told police that he did go to Teresita's that night to fix her TV. But when he got there, he realized that he needed some tools that he forgot. So he went back to his apartment, grabbed his tools and went back to the, and went back to Teresita's at approximately 7.30. When Teresita let him into the apartment and closed the door, Alan claimed that he walked up behind Teresita and strangled her until she was unconscious. And he claimed that the reason that he strangled her until she was unconscious was because on his way back over to Teresita's apartment, Alan made the decision that he was going to rob Teresita. He claimed that the reason that he did it was because Alan had actually been giving Teresita some rides around town um, to the citizenship offices in order to help her get her citizenship. And every time she would, and every time Alan would do that for her, Teresita would tip him like $5, $10, $15, something around that. And because of that, Alan figured that Teresita would have a lot of cash lying around. She would have a lot of spare change, some cash. And Alan said that he was in a really tight spot when it came to the finances and he needed help. So he thought that the best way to go about it was to strangle Teresita and rob her. However, he was very much mistaken when he realized that Teresita only had $30 in cash laying around. So at that point, he took the $30 and he took the jewelry and really just started ransacking the entire apartment. And he then took Teresita's body and brought it into the bedroom, Teresita's bedroom, removed her clothing, put the pile of clothes on top of her, put the mattress on top of her, and then lit everything on fire with the hopes that it would burn all evidence and make it appear that Teresita was raped. Because to him, he felt like if he could make it look like a rape, then he would get off the hook because there wasn't going to be any DNA evidence since he did not rape her. Now, before placing the mattress and the clothes on top of her, Alan went into the kitchen and grabbed that butcher knife before walking back in and stabbing Teresita in the chest before covering her with the clothes and the mattress. Now, Alan claims that Teresita felt no pain because she was unconscious. However, quite frankly, there's no way to know whether that was true or not. And after he lit Teresita on fire, he claims he ran out of the building and returned back to his home. Now, Alan was then arrested for the murder of Teresita. However, he ended up pleading not guilty despite his confession, and the case ended up going to trial. And even at the trial, this trial resulted in a hung jury because they could not unanimously decide if Alan was guilty. So he was set to go back to trial for a second time. However, while he was in prison waiting for this second trial, he ended up changing his plea to guilty and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison and released on parole in 1983. 
So he served his 14 years, then was released. I tried to find information on where he is today. However, I was unable to do so. But that, you guys, is the case of Teresita Bassa. And like I mentioned in the beginning, this is a case unlike any we have ever covered before. And hopefully now you can see why this case is referred to as the case that Teresita solved herself. I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. Again, I... I think it's wild. I really don't know what to believe in this case. And to this day, Remy has sworn up and down that she believes that she was possessed by Teresita to solve her murder. And it just so happens that that is exactly what happened. And it is just a wild, wild case. And um, again, I have, I have no words. I was, when I was researching this case, it was like, I couldn't wrap my head around it because it's just, how does this happen? When does this ever happen? This is, we've never seen something like this before. So I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly every Wednesday. You're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new one for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye, guys.